Thank you, choir, for that call for us to look at the work of Christ on Calvary. And we're actually going to be doing that today as we study God's Word together. And it fits very well with the point that I want to make today as we look at the last um, point of the Reformation, the, uh, the core principles of the Reformation that uh, we've been working through over the last three weeks. And let me just say, to start with, happy, happy Reformation Day. Today is October the 31st, the day on which Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg. And so we uh, are celebrating Fall Festival on Reformation Day. And so that's, uh, that, that has a lot going on for this day today. But we're going to end my series on... Uh, this look at the importance of the Reformation and the core principles of the Reformation with the, the central principle to me of the Christian faith. It's not just important, it is essential to our faith that we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to look at the last core principle of the Reformation today, which is the fact that Christ alone is the source of our salvation. So we're going to do that from Romans chapter 5. We're going to look again at Romans chapter 5, but instead of the first 12 verses like we did earlier, we're going to look at verses 12 through 21 as we consider the um, principle of salvation being through Christ alone. So as you're turning there uh, today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you so much for this beautiful day and for the work that you have already done in our midst through the songs and the prayers and the scripture that we have participated in. And Lord, I pray that as I preach today that you would give me strength, that you would give me clarity, that we, through the word of God, would be changed, each one of us, to walk closer to Christ and to depend more on him and less on ourselves. Father, I pray that you would bless us now in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So if you remember from a few weeks back, I said that we, uh, over the last three weeks, I wanted to work through the core principles of the Reformation. And the Reformation that began uh, officially, I guess you could say, with uh, Martin Luther's protest of the Roman Catholic Church on October the 31st, 1517, the, Ref- the Protestant Reformation sort of crystallized around five principles. And they all dealt with how someone is saved because that was the central issue between the Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church is how is it that someone is justified or uh, saved before God? And we saw that the, Rome, uh, the uh, Protestants sort of formulated these five principles of the Reformation, and it's put very simply into a sentence that I've given you each week, which is this, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and according to Scripture alone. And so we've looked at, so far, the fact that our salvation is by faith alone, that our salvation is by our trusting in Jesus Christ and the work that He has done. It is not based on any merit that we bring to God 
or any worth that we have in and of ourselves or anything that we can do to earn God's favor. Our salvation is based solely upon our trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. Then we saw last week that salvation is by grace alone. That our salvation, in our salvation, we have done nothing and God has done everything. That salvation is totally a work of God from beginning to end. That God has purposed it, God has performed it, and God will complete it. And so we see from beginning to end, God has worked by His grace to save us. And that is not, again, anything that we have done because there's nothing that we can do to add to our salvation. And the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God does not love us anymore because we do a certain number of good works and He does not love us any less because we fail to do those good works. But God loves us because He is motivated by His grace towards us. But you'll notice in both of those sermons and in both of those principles of faith alone and grace alone, they have both been centered around something outside of us. Salvation, if salvation is by faith alone and it is not by our works, then that faith has to rest in something or someone outside of us. And if God's grace alone saves us, then that grace is a work that someone else does for us. And so the central principle of our salvation is that salvation is done for us by someone else. And that someone else is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone is the source of our salvation. Now, we all know that and we all practice that, I think, for the most part, but it's often easy to forget just how important and how central Christ is to everything that we do. That sounds strange to say because we're all Christians and we all center our life around the Christian faith, but a lot of times we can run around doing Christian things and never have Christ at the center of what we're doing. We can do a lot of things for the church and we can put a lot of efforts towards, uh, you know, fall festival and and playing uh, or singing or preaching on Sunday morning. And we can do all of the things that church folks do and we can never have Christ at the center of what we're doing. But Christ is the center of our salvation and he is the center of our life in the church and in the world. And that's important because, and we have to remember that, because the, the, the Reformation came out of a challenge to the Roman Catholic's view of Christ and his central role in the life of the church. The Roman Catholics believe that, yes, again, just like with faith and just like with grace, yes, uh, salvation is by faith and salvation is by grace and salvation is through Christ, but not Christ alone. The church, according to the Roman Catholics, had the power to save by offering forgiveness through penance and through the sacraments. And so many of you know that one of the very popular practices of the Roman Catholic Church is to practice confession. And so as you come to 
a priest at a local Catholic church and you go into the confessional and you confess your sins to the priest, the priest will pronounce absolution for you. He will say, as a representative of Christ in this world, he will pronounce absolution by his authority for the church. The Roman Catholics believe that they have authority over forgiveness and through the offering of penance and sacraments, they can forgive sins. They also taught that Christ gave you an initial shot of righteousness, that you do receive an initial boost or or introductory shot of righteousness through Jesus Christ, but it is your works that really get you to heaven. Or what was popular in in Martin Luther's day was this belief in a treasury of merit, quite literally a treasury stored in heaven that was filled up with the merit of saints. And so the saints had done these, um, uh, these works that are above and beyond the regular moral expectations of men. And because of that, they had added to this treasury of merit. And if you prayed to a saint or you gave money to the church in honor of a saint or you did, uh, you uh, gave money to a relic or something like that, then you could access this treasury of merit and receive an additional uh, gift of grace through that. And the reformers pointed out that this idea of salvation through Christ plus the church or through Christ plus anything else strayed from the clear teaching of Scripture. And so today I want to see that clear teaching of Scripture from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Let's read that passage together as we study together today. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, God's Word says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace and of of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, 
grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the one thing that I want you to get out of this sermon today is I want you to understand that salvation is by works. Salvation is by works. It could be by nothing else. We are saved by works. But we are not saved by our works. Salvation is by the work of one man, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. And there are three things that I want you to see from this text along the lines of the fact that salvation is by the work of another. First of all, I want you to notice the condemnation of Adam, the condemnation in Adam from verses 12 through 14. Now, to understand just what Christ has done for us, we have to remember again where we come from. We have to remember our roots. And Paul reminds us of the condition that every man and woman is born into. There is no one in this room, no one in this world, who is outside of the condition that Paul describes here in verses 12 through 14. And just to remember where we come from, remember that this all began back in Genesis chapter 3. When God placed Adam and Eve into a garden and he gave them a command that they were, first of all, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and everything that creeps along the earth. And then they were to eat of every fruit of the garden, but they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that Uh, that garden paradise, a serpent comes. A created being who is under the rule of Adam as the one who has dominion over all things on earth. But this creeping thing comes to Eve and he offers a distortion of God's word. He says, did God really say that on the day of, that you eat of this fruit, you will truly die. And Eve, in her deception, she takes and she eats of the fruit. And, no, and, and we always miss this fact, but it says in Genesis 3 that she gives it to her husband who was with her. Adam was not off somewhere else and, and Eve came and deceived Adam, but Adam was standing there passively watching this, this created thing over whom he was to have dominion deceive his wife and he allowed that to go on when he, as the king of the world, should have lopped off the head of that serpent right there for distorting the word of God and deceiving his wife and contradicting the word of God. But instead, he led through his disobedience, he led all of the human race into Sin, And there are two ways that Paul says we see this. First of all, he says in verse 12 that all died in Adam. The clearest way that we know that we are under a curse is that we die. And everyone in this world faces death. It is 100% 
effective in its curse. Everyone faces death because everyone is under the curse of Adam. The curse of Adam's sin extended to all of his descendants. And it extended to all of his descendants for two main reasons. First of all, when Adam sinned, he was cast out of the garden. And by being cast out of the garden, he and, Adam, uh, he and Eve and all of his descendants would no longer have access to the tree of life, which was intended to sustain the life, uh, the, the spiritual life and the physical life of the human race. And second, we lost the life of the spirit. On the day that Eve and Adam ate of the fruit, they died spiritually. They lost God's spirit. And by that spirit, they were sustained in their life. The second way that Adam's rebellion affects us is that all sinned in Adam. In verses 12 through 14, Paul tells us that all have sinned through Adam. Now, some might say, oh, no, preacher, I'm my own man. I'm not affected by this sin problem. I'm not affected by Adam's sin. But the Bible and your own experience say otherwise. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible says that God made man in his image. He made man in his likeness. But after the fall, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, when Adam has Seth, it's, or when Eve has Seth, it says that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness. So Seth and all of his descendants and all of the descendants of Adam are born after the likeness of Adam now. And this is also proved out, you can see this very clearly proved out through the story of Genesis. I mean, just think about the, the very next story after the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 is Genesis 4 and the very first murder. So we go from eating fruit to murdering people in one chapter. That's how depraved the human condition is as a result of the fall. And then in chapter 5, we read about uh, 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 Lamech and his murderous habits. And then in chapter 6, we read that all of the world was full of violence and it was so rampant that God judged the world with a flood. But even the judgment of God in, uh, in the flood could not stop the depravity of man. And so we march on through 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, getting all the way up to the Tower of Babel where they say, let's build a tower to ourselves that we might make a name for ourselves, directly rebelling against the image of God in themselves that they might make an idol of themselves against God. Man is totally affected by the fall of Adam. And you know this by your own life. You know this because there are temptations that regardless of how much you fight, you cannot escape. There are things in your life that grip to you like an eagle's talons and you cannot escape the temptation and you continue to go back to that sin 
because it is evidence of your sinful heart. It is evidence of the fact that you, as an individual, were impacted by the fall of Adam. So the second thing that I want you to see from this passage is the contrast of life and death. In verses 15 through 17, Paul points out a contrast, a beautiful contrast between the act of Adam that brought death and the act of Jesus that brought life. And there are three contrasts that Paul makes between the acts of Jesus and the acts of Adam. So notice, first of all, the contrast of the act of sin versus the act of grace in verse 15. Notice there's this beautiful irony in this passage. Adam was given dominion and responsibility over the whole earth. He was created as the image bearer of God. He was created to represent God to the world. And what did Adam do? He acted selfishly in a desire for worldly wisdom and satanic wisdom and his own ability to become like God. And he brought the world into sin. But Jesus, as Philippians chapter 2 says, who was in the very form of God, forsook his rightful place as the heir of heaven to die for us so that we might be saved. Jesus did what Adam could not do. He acted selflessly, completely for the interest of his father, represented God to us as the true image of God, and by his death, we have life. Second contrast that I want you to notice in verse 16 is the contrast of judgment versus justification. Adam's act of sin brought judgment to the whole world. So everyone is judged under the sin of Adam, and we all are found guilty. But through the act of Jesus, all who trust in Him are justified before God. So as we read a couple of weeks ago, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says that we are, have peace with God and are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous before God. The third contrast that I want you to see from this text is in verse 17, and that is the contrast of death versus life. There's this really, again, this beautiful contrast that, God, that Paul makes here that the consequences of Adam's sin is death and hell. And we know that. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. And then, yet, the consequences of Jesus' death is eternal life. So, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have received life through Jesus' death. We receive death through Adam's life, but we receive life through Jesus' death. The last thing that I want you to see from this text is the confidence in Jesus Christ from verses 18 through 21. So Paul now compares those who are in Christ to those who are in Adam. 
And he says, he he draws all these contrasts between life in Christ and life in Adam. And there's a teaching here that we can't miss. And it seems strange to us because we grew up in America and we're very individualistic and we believe that every man... you know, represents himself and you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and it doesn't matter where you came from, you can be whatever you want to be. And all that's great and good and that makes our nation a great nation. But what the Bible teaches about who we are fundamentally is the idea of what's known as the federal headship. And what that means, and we find it throughout Scripture, but what it means is that in Scripture you find that God judges or deals with a group of people based on one man. And that can be either be a really good thing or it can be a really bad thing. So if you think about it, you think of a couple of bad examples. Uh, Pharaoh, all of Egypt is judged because of one man's hardness of heart, Right? If you remember the story of Exodus and Moses goes to uh, Pharaoh repeatedly and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, the Bible says, hardens his heart. And after every time that Pharaoh hardens his heart, everybody in Egypt suffers. It's because of one man's stubbornness, everybody is judged. In, um, also in the story of uh, in, in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, you read the story of the battle of Ai. And the people of Israel had just had a great victory in Jericho and they go on to the battle of Ai and they lose terribly to this small town of Ai. And when they get to looking, they find out that someone had taken some riches from Jericho, which was directly forbidden by God. And they get to searching for who it is and they discover that Achan has taken some gold from from Jericho. And, and Joshua brings out Achan and all of his family and he has them confess or has Achan confess. And then the Bible says, and it's a terrible story if you go and read it, but the Bible says that they, the, the nation of Israel stoned Achan, his wife, his children, his donkeys, his camels, his goats, everything that was Achan's died because of that one man. So we find this idea of federal headship in Scripture that one person or a whole group of people are judged because of one man's sin. And that is true in the broadest sense in Adam. It's a terrible news to receive, but we are all judged because we are all under Adam. But there's good news because if one man can bring judgment on a whole group of people, guess what? One man can bring salvation for a whole group of people. So, if you think about some good examples of that, Lot and his family are saved not because of their own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Lot's uncle, Abraham. Through Abraham, God says the whole nation of Israel will be blessed. Before anybody in Israel is ever born, God chooses to bless all of Israel through one man, Abraham. And the best news in the broadest sense is this. 
through one man, all who trust in Jesus Christ are blessed because of that one man. We receive the righteousness of Christ and the grace of God and the salvation and the eternal life that He brings, not because of who we are or or where we uh, reside or who we reside in, but because we are in Christ, we have His righteousness and His salvation. The last thing about that is a beautiful statement and it's kind of lost on us, but in Genesis in, 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 in Romans chapter five, verse 20, Paul makes this statement. He says, now the law came in, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Jesus in his righteous death gave abundantly more than our unrighteousness deserved. He gave far above anything we could ever do to dishonor or disobey God the Father. Jesus Christ, I love that song, grace that is greater than all our sins. That's the idea here, is that even though our sins are treacherous and rebellious and defiling to God, yet Christ in His righteousness extends even more than the greatest of our sins. His grace is greater than all of our sins. So we do not have to fret the loss of our salvation because we stumble and sin against God. We do not have to buy back our righteousness every time we sin through the church or through penance or some good deeds that we offer. We, do, we are saved through the righteous and gracious works of Christ, not our own works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Gospel, that You have done what we could not do. That our salvation does not rest in our own works, but in the works of another. Lord, we know that we have grace in Jesus Christ if we have trusted in Him. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who is not trusted in Christ, that You would do the work in them to change their hearts and minds to turn to You today and believe in You for their salvation. Thank You, Lord, and pray that You would bless us as we continue to worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.